This is an AMI podcast. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. I'm Dave Brown. It's the Wednesday, January 18th, 2023 edition of the show. Coming up in the second hour of the show, people across Ontario and Canada are remembering former Lieutenant Governor David Onley. Megan Gilmore will reflect on his life. And Arno Kopecki, environmental journalist, will share his thoughts on the recent UN Biodiversity Conference in Montreal and explore some of the push and pull around protecting green space versus building more housing. Before you get any of that, here is the regional news update. Beginning in British Columbia, where BC Premier David Eby has announced a $90 million fund for projects that bring jobs to communities affected by changes in the forestry industry. The Premier described the types of projects that could be funded. We're looking for projects that diversify local economies, and promote forestry value-added innovation. Whether it's a forestry company seeking new equipment to make mass timber products, or setting up a new bioplastics or biofuel facility in a rural community. Projects. We want to jumpstart these projects. <laughs> I interrupted the Premier there. My apologies, Premier EB. Projects will be eligible for up to $10 million in funding. Over to the Prairies, Federal Cabinet Minister Dan Vandal has announced an investment of nearly $10 million into Edmonton's hydrogen industry. The funding could create up to 1,600 jobs. Vandal feels this investment may have positive impacts across Alberta's economy. This morning's announcement is all about strengthening the hydrogen supply chain and increasing investments in uh, the Edmonton region. We are going to make sure that that the projects that are funded today uh, will help the Alberta economy benefit from the hydrogen industry. Over to Ontario, a First Nation in Northern Ontario says it has uncovered 171 plausible burials at a former residential school site. The Wazhansk Onagum Nation says most of them were unmarked. The site is formally home to the St. Mary's Residential School in Kenora. Records provided by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission show at least 36 children died there. The First Nation says the possible remains were found using ground-penetrating radar. And over to the Atlantic, Food First Newfoundland says it will shut down its community food helpline in March because of a lack of funding and overwhelming demand. CEO Josh Schmee says the answer is not to fund the helpline, but to boost people's incomes through increases to welfare and the minimum wage so people can afford to buy groceries. Nick Saul with Community Food Centres Canada agrees with Smee's appeal. He says food charity is not the solution to Canada's growing hunger crisis. That's your look at the regional news. Let's bring in Brock Richardson for a sports chat. Brock, last week you and I had a fairly interesting conversation about merging the Paralympics, Special Olympics and Olympics together into one event. And one of the little threads that came out of that that we didn't have time to tug at is the question of whether or not the Olympics are for pro athletes or amateur athletes. So Brock, what do you make of the idea of keeping pro athletes in or out of the Olympics? Yes, I think the intention is for the games to be for amateur athletes. And as a sports reporter, I I believe that this is a good thing. However, as a fan, I do appreciate the fact that the NHL does go. I do like watching best on best. But in short answer, I think the purpose of the Olympic Games is to be uh, for amateur athletes. Brock, what do you do with the idea that some of these sports do involve pros 
in possibly less monetized sports. So for example, if you think about some of the track and field athletes, where there are professional events that go on throughout the rest of the year, where there is an opportunity for these athletes to get paid and play as a continuity of the Olympic Games. I guess what I'm asking you to do here is do you draw a distinction between multi-millionaire athletes and athletes in less monetized sports? Yes, I, that's exactly where I draw the line. If you are making millions and millions of dollars and, you know, signing seven-year contracts for, you know, money that you or I will never see at once, um, then, you know, that's where you draw the line. I do think, too, it's, it's if you are able to make yourself a professional then, you know, with track and field, like I'm thinking Usain Bolt, that guy became a sensation basically overnight. But it's that's where I draw the line. I think that there's a difference totally in one versus the other. To a certain degree, Brock, wouldn't you say the Olympics are about best on best competition, though? It's about finding out who the best in the world is. And if we start separating all the pros out from the amateurs or just taking Usain Bolt out of the Olympics track and field, we're taking away some of the marquee and the legitimacy of the event. And then and then to your point, you because people were gravitating to Usain Bolt, you know, running the 100 meters. And those are the storylines that do get you. Uh, and that's where as the fan, I just kind of look at this and I go, mm, you know, are we are we mitigating what is the Olympics because of what I'm saying? Yes. But as I go back to, I think the intent of what they were hoping for when making the games was that it was for amateur athletes, but I think it's grown into something far beyond that. Yeah, I, I would just be concerned that you would actually lose some of the interest in these games because let's be clear, Brock, the Olympics kind of stopped being a celebration of amateur sport uh, a long time ago and is now a multi-billion dollar industry that, that circles around it. And when you really get down to it, when you think about the Winter Olympics, what are the main events? Uh, in the Winter Olympics, it was it was the, the the men's hockey, it was the women's hockey, and so even when we talk about talk about professional professionalization of women's hockey, there would be a lot of those athletes who would be excluded from the event because of their existence in the North American Women's Hockey League, or in the case of soccer in the summer, the North American Women's Soccer League. So there would be some unintended consequences here. I think even in some of the equity sports or equity positions around women's sports, where if we started saying pro athletes can't compete, we'd be taking away a major platform from a lot of people who either a create a marquee event like the basket like like the men's basketball like the men's hockey like the women's hockey and places like swimming and track and field and and maybe losing some of that multi-billion dollar draw although brock i'm very open to the conversation that is should the olympics actually be a financial endeavor period right and i think as we're having this discussion another sport comes to mind I look at curling, you know, that has become a professional sport over the, since I've been watching it as a kid, it was, it wasn't so known. And then TV dollars became involved and then, you know, this and that. And so we have to be careful in, in using the word amateur versus professional, because in the sense you may get to an athlete who's not designated quote-unquote a professional athlete and they go hey but wait a minute i play at major events over here and i make my money yes it's not millions and millions of dollars but it's still on the line of professionals so we do have to sort of be careful that we're not getting down a slippery slope and really dividing amateur versus professional because i think some athletes could be generally genuinely offended possibly yeah. in being designated one or the other I, I just want to watch the best compete. That, that, that's where I land on these things. And the fact is I'm not going to watch the world championships every year of the downhill G4 skiing or the giant slalom skiing. Give it to me once every four years. Let me see the best and uh, let the amateurs work their way into those pro ranks. That's, that's kind of where I land, Brock. I know it's not the most uh, welcoming position in the world, but that's kind of where I land on these things. Yeah, and, and you do have to, in a sense, you have to earn your position to be there when you see games like uh, Latvia and 
uh, you know, um, I'm trying to think of another team, but like a weaker team. We don't tend to watch those games at, at at World Championships. Why? Because it's not as competitive. And the same can be said in all of sports. The, the, the line is getting closer and closer as we go, but we don't watch the ones that don't intrigue us. And so I do think there's a level of you have to earn your way there. Yeah. I'm also someone who believes that more amateur athletes should be compensated better in their pursuit of athletics. So that muddies the waters as well, saying how much compensation can you get before you're officially a professional athlete? And that that that's a game of, of, of trying to drill down on a number that we're not going to do today, Brock, because we'll probably be here for three hours trying to figure out the numbers. So let's move on to something that is uh, no less controversial. It's rule changes in baseball, but specifically into the minor leagues, Brock. This year, a number of AAA stadiums are going to be testing robotic umpires. What's your vibe on the robots taking over calling balls and strikes? I understand why we are where we are, and I totally get it. I am a traditionalist, and I do like the human element. I do like coming on to shows like these and talking to you and saying, did you see what that umpire did last <laughs> night? You know, I can't believe he made this call. And that's this. This is the part that I like. This is the beautiful thing about sports. We can all talk about what happened, what didn't happen, all these things. And, and I also want to preface this by saying, just because we're doing this as robotic, everything I've been understanding is when they've tried it, this is not a perfect system. There are things that, aren't going to go perfectly with this. I'm okay with it. I just think we're inching ever closer to the idea of robots becoming into the major leagues. And I would love it if a batter turned around to that robot and started yelling at the robot because <laughs> it's the wrong call. But I don't think we're going to be there. So there's a part of this that I miss. And, I, and I'm and i a weird person in the sense that I miss the manager-umpire arguments that you used to get you know, and they'd come out, they'd defend their team. We don't see that as often anymore because of review, which still from time to time becomes wrong. But yeah, I'm a traditionalist, Dave. I'm here for the robots. I think there's a lot of things in sport that should be measured objectively. And the, the, the strike zone in baseball is certainly one of them. I think it's better for the integrity of the game that a strike that was a strike in the first inning remains a strike in the ninth inning. A ball that is a ball remains a ball. I think that's better for the sport. It's better for the players. It's better for everybody involved. There are still subjectivities that exist in officiating in sports. Let's leave that to boxing and mixed martial arts and referee deciding what's interference and not interference in the NHL but this is the wave of the future and when we're talking about objectivities for the sake of the integrity of competition it's really worthwhile and Brock currently we have the Australian Open going on uh, the major tennis tournament and one of the things tennis gets absolutely right is the reviews on balls being in or out there's never a question anymore if that ball went over the line or was in the line or not and it's better for the game yeah, and there's even still the point which I, I find almost really amusing. There is from time to time, you know, athletes in tennis will ask to see the the, the chase review. They're not arguing it, but they just want to see, was it actually accurate? And I've never seen a situation where that, that robotic chase umpire was inaccurate. It's 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 still something that they're getting used to. And like I said, every time they say, you know, can we have a look at it? I just kind of chuckle and I go, you know, this is going to be right. But here we are <laughs> taking a look. And it's, instead of it being, you know, seven or eight times we're looking in a match, it might only be now two or three where, where they say, you know, can we have a look? Because I really think this was closer than the, the robotic umpire made it. And then they learned uh, not so much. But uh, yeah, it's it, I like it. To Brock, be honest. Brock, I'm already, I'm already bummed out that Rafa Nadell's out of the Australian Open. I'm already bummed mm -hmm. out. What I'm also bummed out about is I think I need to turn off the TSN push notifications on my phone because they're going all night in my bedroom being like, this match is starting at 2 in the morning. No, TSN. Can't you hear me snoring? I know my phone's listening. Don't give me that mm -hmm. push notification at 2 in the morning. If I wanted to watch something at 2 in the morning, I would be watching it at 2 in the morning. Brock? I, I turned off my TSN notifications when they gave me that horrible push for college football. That was the end of my TSN uh, notification. Ohio, the Ohio Bobcats against uh, Penn State. That was it for you. Hey, Brock, yeah. we, we got to get out of here, man. Have a great day. 
You too. That's Brock Richardson. He's the host of The Neutral Zone at the AMI Sports Desk. Alex Smythe is the co-host of this show, but also at the AMI Weather Desk. Here is your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. We're starting off in Cornerbrook, Newfoundland, where it's a mix of rain and snow expected today, up to two millimeters set to fall. The high, two degrees. In Charlottetown, PEI, it's cloudy with rain or freezing rain expected this morning. The high is one, but feeling like minus six. In St. John, New Brunswick, it's cloudy with snow expected this afternoon. The high is one, feeling like minus seven. In Quebec City, Quebec, it's cloudy, but becoming a mix in sun and clouds this afternoon. Zero is the high, but with the wind chill, it feels like minus 13. Here in Toronto, Ontario, it's cloudy with a chance of rain today and a high of five degrees. In Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, it is cloudy with a chance of snow this morning. Minus two is the high, minus seven with that wind chill. Over to Brandon, Manitoba, where it is cloudy with a chance of snow this morning and afternoon, then turning to a mix of sun and clouds later on in the day. The high is minus 8, but feeling like minus 19. In Regina, Saskatchewan, it's cloudy with a chance of light snow or freezing rain today. The high is minus 5, feeling closer to minus 20. In Lethbridge, Alberta, it is sunny, wind gusts up to 60 kilometers per hour, the high is 4 degrees, but a wind chill is making it feel like minus 10. In Red Deer, Alberta, it's sunny, becoming a mix of sun and clouds this morning. The high, minus 4, but with that wind chill, minus 21. Up in Whitehorse, Yukon, it's a mix of sun and clouds today. Minus 4 is the high as well, but not as cool with a wind chill only of minus 11. Over to Kelowna, BC, it is cloudy with a chance of snow or rain today. The high is 2 degrees. And finally, in Vancouver, BC, there's rain this morning that is set to become a mix of sun and clouds later on in the day. Up to 10 millimeters of rain is expected, and the high is 8 degrees. That's your AMI National Weather Report from Environment Canada. Thank you very much. Alex, coming up after the break, Arno Kopecki will share some takeaways from the UN Biodiversity Conference in Montreal. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The United Nations held a biodiversity summit in December. Montreal played host to the conference. Countries did agree on some lofty goals, including the protection of large swaths of land and water. But how does that work in practical terms? And what does that mean for other areas of policy priority? Let's get some perspective from journalist Arno Kopecki. Hey, good morning, Arno. How are you? Hey, good morning, Dave. I'm good, thanks. How are you? I'm well. So a big and broad question to get started. What's your big mm -hmm. takeaway from the Biodiversity Conference? Well, you know, I'm, I'm always reassured when almost 200 countries get together to, to work on a problem that signals at least that people are paying attention and, and dedicating some serious resources to it. Um, you know, the, and I'm glad also that, you know, I think COP15 kind of got ignored a little bit in the lead up to Christmas and right after there had just been a huge climate conference right before that and biodiversity is really like the big issue from an environmental perspective uh, even bigger than climate change which is just sort of one part of it the big sexy takeaway from the montreal meeting was uh, a commitment by 196 countries around the world to uh, protect 30 percent of their land and water by the year 2030 so seven years from now that's not a lot of time to get going but that that was the big the big broad uh, takeaway from it uh Arnold, you mentioned the importance of biodiversity. So even with that agreement to protect 30% of lands and water across Canada, what are those threats that face habitats? Sure. You know, I mean, just to put it into context here, we are living through a biodiversity crisis. Species are going extinct at about, you know, approaching a thousand times the rate of uh, the pre-industrial average before humans, you know, before we got going with the industrial revolution. Uh, and so the the the, the biggest uh, impact uh, driver of of extinction and and putting species at risk of the extinction is habitat loss, uh, paving over 
nature for cities and farmland primarily. But right behind that is uh, over-exploitation, so overfishing, uh, 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 over-hunting of, of animals. Um, and right behind that is climate change, which is set to become number one. Climate change is sort of just starting. Habitat destruction is sort of ramping down as we've pretty much built most of our cities and established most of our farmland. So that destruction is 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 done, and climate change is just beginning. So it's it's really a big deal uh, if we can follow through. And of course, that is the big if mm. to come out of this conference. Can we actually protect thirty percent of our water and land? Uh, Arno, you have to forgive me here, but because perhaps the answer to this is almost too obvious to even bother asking the question. But what <laughs> is that correlation between the loss of biodiversity and an ongoing climate change? Sure. So climate change, uh, you know, there are so many species from, let's look at our forests, for example. Um, as as climate warms up, Canada is hugely susceptible to pest invasions now. We've got all kinds of invasive bugs and little pests like the pine beetle that has destroyed forests in Alberta. Yeah, the, 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 the emerald ash borer in, uh, in, in eastern Canada. Yeah, that's right. There's Every province has its own example. You know, Canada has more forests than any country in the world except Russia. And as climate kicks up, all of these bugs are coming in and they're just destroying huge swaths of trees and, and literally actually like wiping out certain species. Um, that's just one example in forests. In oceans, you know, uh, here on, on the West Coast, as climate change warms up our streams and dries them out, salmon have a hard time spawning in rivers that used to be much more accommodating to them. Uh, those kinds of little things, there are so many micro little uh, ways that animals and, and plants have adapted to very specific climate conditions that have been stable over hundreds of thousands of years. Um, and now the climate is changing more rapidly than those animals and especially plants and trees can adapt to these new conditions. So they go extinct in countless little ways mm -hmm. that, are, that are very hard to describe. And, and that's just beginning now, you know, because yeah. it's really only in the last 10 or 15 years that we've started to feel the impacts of climate change. Those migrations are certainly a concern. There's stories about black widow spiders making their way into Windsor, Ontario. Now, there was already a lot of reasons not to go to Windsor, yeah. Ontario. You had black widow spiders <laughs> to the mix, and that'll, that'll keep me out for a while. Just until the rattlesnakes come and the scorpions come, then I got to move further north, off to Thunder Bay I go. Uh, Arno, speaking of cities, sorry, I don't mean to be so flippant about this. Um, speaking of Cities. No, we, gotta laugh. <laughs> we, we have to laugh at our misery sometimes. Yeah, uh, Arno, speaking of cities and urban sprawl in terms of the way it impacts habitat, there's a mm. story out of Ontario that will impact green space. The province introduced the Build More Homes Faster Act that allows urban sprawl to seep into what was protected green space around cities. What's your yeah. reaction to, the, to this policy around the green belt? Yeah, so, you know, I, I live in Vancouver, as you know, and, and I've been watching this from afar. Uh, you and, and I'm sure many of your viewers will uh, know probably more about this than I do. But the Green Belt, of course, is is this one of the biggest uh, things of its kind. It's this huge tract of it's literally a green belt around some of the urban areas uh, in Toronto and, and, and surrounding areas uh, that protects uh, the integrity of the ecosystems and, and protects wetlands and, and forbids development from occurring in floodplains, for example, um, and and Ontario set up a number of conservation authorities, which uh, which is sort of a separate jurisdiction of, of of government that determines who's allowed to build what where, especially in these green belts. And the idea is to conserve uh, forests and 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 tracts of nature, uh, like you're looking at on your screen right now. So that uh, a flood control is a big one and, you know, conservation of biodiversity of all the species that live in these areas. Mm. Um, that's a huge one. And, and so, you know, this has been pretty sacred to Ontarians for a long time. And now uh, under the pressure of the housing crisis, Doug Ford has reneged on, a, on an initial promise that he would not touch it. And with this Bill 23 that has now been passed, uh, they are set to begin building and developing, uh, I think it's something like 50,000 homes, uh, which is just a small number of the million-some homes that they that they want to be mm -hmm. building. If I can say there's, there is a, a sort of irony here, uh, the conservation authorities were established as a result, as a response to a hurricane in 1954, Hurricane Hazel, which just destroyed uh, I think 81 homes, or it killed 81 people and destroyed, you know, hundreds and if not thousands of homes that were built into these floodplains, and it made Ontarians realize how vulnerable they were to these uh, uh, natural disasters. And the protective 
uh, layer that having intact uh, forests and wetlands offers to human habitation. And so uh, that conservation authority was established back in the 50s, and then it was followed up with uh, uh, really the formalized Greenbelt as we know it today mm -hmm. happened around, I think, 2005 or six. And so it's a little bit ironic to say, okay, we're going to forget that right when these hurricanes and flood events are going to become more drastic. Uh, let's just ignore that and start building back into these. Yeah, floodplains. I mean, f forget even are going to be the the fact is in eastern Ontario in the last couple of years there were three Already or four are. major flood events in areas that were low lying wetland areas that were allowed to be developed on, and people are still kind of figuring out why they were allowed to be developed on because they were on known floodplains. And what was happening is people were building these homes major floods were occurring and they were uninsurable and then people were running to the media well i can't get my house uh, insured yeah because you built it on a floodplain not that i'm trying to yeah. be like unsympathetic to people but like like <laughs> like we need to have some sense in the way we're doing this kind of development it's a good test of your commitment to compassion these these circumstances where people <laughs> dig their own graves a little bit and and you know ultimately though it, it is the responsibility not of individuals so much as as government to to say, okay, well, we ha we understand the bigger picture. You are not allowed to build a home here. Yeah, um, that, like, yeah, we like me, we can't we line. can't zone this. We can't give you building approval. Totally, zoning is uh, zoning is everything in these circumstances, and it's it's everywhere. You know, I mean, Ontario is not alone. This is a a global problem now. I mean, all of Florida, half of Florida is basically built on in the face of rising seas. But if mm -hmm. we're talking about Ontario, yes, this is a huge issue, and. It's, it really illuminates why we're in this pinch in the first place, because, you know, all over the world, housing is people need places to live. And so we mm. have plowed over all of these natural spaces to build homes. And now, you know, we're living in this reckoning and, and it's, 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 it's easy to be flippant about it. But it also it's you know, I have some sympathy for uh, the crunch that we are in. But the solution is not to just sprawl out our cities ever further as yeah. we have been for the last century. Yeah, yeah, you're right to identify that, and I agree. There is a housing crisis. It's very, very real. There are some economists yeah. and social scientists who think that by solving the housing crisis, we're going to solve many, many, many other issues, and there's certainly some case studies in science to back that up. So if we're going to rule out urban yeah. sprawl, if we're going to say, please, let's not be developing into floodplains and green space and affecting biodiversity, what are the alternatives that could be explored to offset the housing crisis and actually get people into long-term, sustainable, affordable homes? Oh, Dave, thank you for asking that question. Uh, it has a fairly easy answer and a longer answer. The easy one is to build up instead of out. Uh, so densify, densify, build more townhouses, build, you know, follow the European model where they've already gone through all this. And if you go to a European city, people don't really expect to live in a house with a yard and a fence and all of these things. They live in much more compact circumstances. And the Canadian dream, you know, I grew up in middle class Edmonton, Alberta. I was that kid who had, you know, we weren't rich, but we had a house and a yard and a basement and lots of space and two kids. And, uh, you know, that that was normal today. I don't have that. I, we live in a townhouse in, in Vancouver and space is much tighter. Uh, of course, Vancouver is very expensive, but I think that, you know, I don't think my story is unique to people of my generation that we're, that we're tightening our spaces. And I also think it doesn't have to be a negative story. We also have access to all kinds of amenities, living in denser uh, towns and cities that, um, that, ha you know, I can walk to all kinds of shops and grocery stores and cafes and pubs. It's really nice. I think for people with disabilities, these denser city spaces offer a lot more access and opportunity than sprawled out suburbs where the only way to get anywhere is to jump in a car and drive for 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the last thing that I, you know, if we're speaking about zoning and real estate and, and sprawl, a huge piece of this puzzle, which doesn't sound like an environmental thing is just the commodification of housing uh, which has driven up prices so much and that's the kind of thing that you never hear a doug ford style government talk about that maybe we should take housing out of the casino of uh you know <laughs> of our modern economy that mm. it can just be a poker chip for the international uh community because then canada and vancouver is 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 really the the primo global example of this that our prices have just been uh absolutely astronomically exploded by the commodification of our housing stock. And it's, it's a real tragedy, and it sucks the life out of a city, even regardless of 
ecological considerations. Yeah, speculation in the housing industry is a big, big deal. There was a number yeah. coming out of American research that about 25% of, of single-family homes purchased last year were purchased by an investment firm. A major investment firm not not humans not people not even like maybe one individual saying i'm buying an investment property no 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 firms a quarter of those home sales were being bought by institutional investors that's that's a that's the commodification of housing through and through and arno i just want to make one totally. last sort of note here on on, on densification mm -hmm. people oftentimes will think about densification as it's just a bunch of 300 square foot condos no, 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 no. That's not what people are talking about when they're talking about density. They're talking about 1,200 square foot, 1,500 square foot townhouses, condos, bungalows, stacked housing. There's so many ways you can do it that's aesthetically beautiful, aesthetically pleasing, totally. that still gives people space. Totally. And there's more room. There's tons of room for parks and community. And I think, like, the advantage of community, it's, just, it's a whole different way of looking at a city and living in a city. Uh, again, you know, sort of, getting rid of this idea that this love affair that we have with a big home and a big yard, you still get lots of space in a 1200 foot townhouse, for example, you're living closer to your neighbors and you're, you have a sense of community that is mm. absent from these, from these cookie cutter uh, sprawled out communities. And I, you know, a lot of European cities uh, are really great models for this. If you look at, especially the Scandinavian countries, they're vibrant, they're wholesome, there's green space, uh, there's living space, there's all the things that, really make life joyful. But I think we haven't seen that in North America. We've been so car and single family home obsessed that we can't even imagine other ways of living. Yeah. Hey, Arno, thank you for uh, doing a little bit of a U-turn, a little spin around for us today. I like that we kind of linked these two things together. All the best to you and yours, yeah. and we'll talk to you in a few weeks. Awesome, Dave. Thanks back. Take care. That is environmental journalist Arno Kopecki joining the show from Vancouver. Coming up next, as people across Canada continue to remember former Ontario Lieutenant Governor David Onley, Megan Gilmore will share a reflection on the impact that he's had on her life. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. People across Ontario continue to remember former Lieutenant Governor David Onley. Onley passed away over the weekend. His influence went well beyond the borders of this province. He impacted so many people along the way. Megan Gilmore has some reflections on his life. Hey, good morning, Megan. Good morning, Dave. Megan, you've had a chance to interact with David Onley a couple of times over the mm -hmm. years. What are some of your memories of David? Sure. So I first met him myself when I was working at the CNIB Lake Joseph Center uh, during his time as lieutenant governor. And we had uh, this, the center just completed a big building renovation project that was fully accessible. And he came to the grand opening of that. Um, and then uh, back in 2019, when he did the independent review of the Accessibility for Ontarians with Disabilities Act, um, we had him on the pulse, and I was filling in for you at the time, Dave, and I, I got the chance to do a pretty extensive interview with him about that report. Um, and then most recently, um, I was emailing him a couple years ago when I was doing reporting on uh, what was then known as Bill C-7, which expanded uh, medical assistance in dying uh, to people who aren't dying. Um, and I interviewed him for that. Um, and we spoke about some other projects I was working on as well. I only had the chance to meet him once, but my interaction left me thinking about the kindness and curiosity <laughs> that he had. He was someone who wanted to learn more about me as an aspiring broadcaster and journalist with a disability and who I was and what I was doing, even more so than why I was talking to him, which is actually quite rare. Most people don't have that curiosity when you spend time with them. So I was left thinking about kindness and curiosity mm -hmm. what was your impression of his personality yeah definitely i got that as well he was super kind to me because in uh an article i wrote for tvo about the concerns that disabled ontarians had about expanding made i interviewed him and i said that he used a wheelchair um but it's more accurate to say that he uses an electronic scooter so he mm. sent me this little email after the article ran being like hey you know if you can change it 
but if not, it's okay. Like it's technically like it is kind of true, but not, you know, that kind of thing. So it was, it was just really nice of him. But I'm um, actually, I first heard about David only, I believe, through my late grandmother, because uh, David's wife, now widow Ruth Ann, is a singer and mm. a speaker, and she speaks at a lot of like Christian women's events. And um, my grandmother went to those um with my aunt so that's how that's how i first heard about the family david only was many things he was a man of faith he was a man of strong christian faith and conviction and um as a christian myself when i read his only report 2019 i could hear that coming through and the ways that he would talk about the need for there to be a heart change in ontario not just a legislative change but there to be a change in people's hearts when it comes to accessibility and i really i really respected the way that he interwove his faith into his public work. Yeah, we, we should mention um, his family. Uh, Ruth Ann mm-hmm. posted on Facebook yesterday saying that in lieu of flowers, if people wanted to honor his life, uh, they would be uh, encouraged to donate money to any accessibility cha- uh, charity of their choosing, a charity devoted to advancing the cause of accessibility, which is obviously so much about mm-hmm. his legacy, whether overt or subverts. He was someone who was perpetually championing accessibility, uh, whether in those words or whether through his actions. And Megan, when we come back to this idea of kindness, that we were left with the impression of kindness, even a gentleness, right? When When he was asking you for the possibility of offering a correction in a story, there was advocacy there. There was fierce advocacy there, but it was through kindness. And I've been thinking Mm -hmm. about that a lot over the last few days because one of the impressions that we've had here is that we've lost one of the good guys, right? One of the people who was going above and beyond for the movement, but doing it in a way that built bridges and brought people (laughs) in. I wonder if you have a reflection on where kindness is sometimes put as a binary to fierce advocacy, but maybe they're not so different. Yeah, I was thinking about that this morning. Um, I was preparing to come on here. And David Onley was a man of deep, strong conviction um, about accessibility, about so many other things, but he communicated it in this very kind way that did not compromise on the truth, but um, was still inviting like he i think he and i did i didn't know him very well but just um kind of ran in some similar circles i think he understood the human condition probably in a way that goes beyond just binaries um and he understood that people need to have their minds changed about things about accessibility, right? Like, he, if you read his full report, which you should, it is incredibly well-written, he do, he talks about more than legislation, talks about attitudes, talks about people's hearts. And you don't change somebody's heart by, like, hammering them with a, like, with a hammer. Like, you don't do it that way. Um, so he did seem to be really much about, like, investing in people and building relationships and knowing that that was really how any cause, especially accessibility, actually gets propelled forward. Megan, he wrote that report in 2019, which certainly Mm -hmm. rattled some cages, but he was someone who was really on the front lines advocating for accessibility all the way through. What do you believe his legacy is? Yeah, that's a really great question. I would hope that it is the kindness, actually. Um, David Onley obviously did not see a fully accessible Ontario before he died. Um, I don't think he was under any illusions about that. Um, he knew that this was going to be a long time coming. Um, I do think his faith plays a big role in that, that he had a hope in something that was bigger than him, that was beyond him, that, um, is eternal, that lasts beyond Ontario. So I really actually think that's really what grounded a lot of his work, but, but yeah, that kindness, um, and the continual just wanting to invest in people. Like he goes back and he lectures at U of T. The man does not need to do that. He was a lieutenant governor of Ontario um, and he just wanted to like be with students and change their minds. And and this commitment to to truth telling, right? Michelle McQuig, when she was on this program earlier this week, talked about when he was a broadcaster and he made sure that his scooter was in the shot. Yeah, yeah. and like, so for me, I, and I know Dave, you, you've had this experience as well, like as somebody who wanted to be in journalism, 
David Onley was way out of the industry by the time I was starting to come up and people would say, oh yeah, like there's been people like you before because David Onley. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Trailblazer. There's there's no mm -hmm. doubt about it. And someone whose uh, legacy and impact will be felt for years and years and years. And there's a lot of lessons, a lot of lessons to be learned from the life of David Onley. Megan, I know it's not always easy talking about uh, the loss of someone who, even if there were only a couple meetings along the way, they definitely have impacts in our lives. So thank you for sharing that vulnerability today. Oh, well, thanks. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, he will be greatly, greatly missed, but not, forgot, yeah. not forgotten. Yeah, and still waiting to uh, learn about uh, the possibility of funeral arrangements or a state funeral. Um, there was still no word on that yesterday, no word on that this morning, but when that comes out, we'll make sure to uh, pass that along. That's accessibility reporter Megan Gilmore reflecting on the life of former Lieutenant Governor David Onley. And you can follow Megan on social media on Twitter at Megan Gilmore, M-E-A-G-A-N-G-I-L-L-M-O-R-E. Coming up after the break, we'll switch gears and have a little bit of fun when we bring in Ramya Amuthan, the co-host of Kelly and Ramya, Nazreen Abdelmajid, and Alex Smythe, talking about a mega pop star launching a 2023 tour. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Let's look ahead to this afternoon when Kelly and Ramya hits the airwaves at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. Ramya Amuthan is the co-host of that show and has a bit of a preview. Hey, good morning, Ramya. Good morning, Dave. So, Ramya, what did I you... do have a bit of a preview. You do have a bit of a preview, but before we go yes. looking forward, I want to look back in time. What did you learn about smoothies yesterday? Oh, man, such a good conversation. Okay, so I think the one that sticks out to me is uh, protein. She talked about peanut butter, as I had mm -hmm, uh, teased mm -hmm. here on the show, and how basically peanut butter is not bad for you in your smoothie, and it definitely does add protein, but the ratio of fat to protein, fat is much higher. So you're getting more healthy fat benefits from uh, peanut butter than you are for the protein aspect. So to add on to the protein, you can use protein powder mm -hmm. or cottage cheese or Ew. other, no? Okay. <laughs> or Greek yogurt. That's my favorite. There we go. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if I'm going to be putting a cottage <laughs> cheese with my uh, strawberry blue, my strawberry blueberry uh, and banana. Uh, cottage cheese is, can, can go be its own thing, but Greek yogurt, that's a good <laughs> idea right there. I like that. And protein powder for sure. And you can add a little flavoring too, right? They have chocolate yeah. protein powder. They have strawberry Tons. protein powder. They have vanilla protein powder. All kinds of good stuff. That's how you get jacked. That's how you get yoked. Okay, that's enough about yesterday. If people want to learn more about that smoothie conversation, search for Kelly and Ramya on your favorite podcasting platform. But let's look to the future, Ramya. What's coming up today? Okay, so today we're talking about complaining. Margaret Weldon is joining us on In the Know, and she's going to tell us about good complaining, bad complaining, and productive complaining. Uh, we're also chatting with Tracy Burden, founder of Canadians Care, about the incredible work that they're doing to raise money for medical supplies, specifically uh, for the war on Ukraine. So we're going to talk more about that initiative. And there's been some new changes to the healthcare delivery in Ontario with regards to virtual care and accessibility. Uh, we've been following all this kind of change and update with our registered nurse, Leslie Depo, and she's joining us for more of that today. Oh, that's a really important conversation, especially with some of the privatization conversations gone on in the yep. last couple of days. I'm sure there's going to be some uh, in-depth conversation there. Ramya, there's never any complaints when we listen to Kelly and Ramya, but let's bring in the other two members of our roundtable, AMI-audio producer, Nazreen Abdel-Majid. Hello, Nazreen. Hello. And, of course, the person who conducts the roundtable is the co-host of this show, Alex Smythe. Alex, what's on your mind? Yeah, so yesterday uh, it was announced uh, that um, pop superstar Madonna is uh, going to be doing a North American and European tour this year. Now, this will be a uh, anniversary tour, so it's going to be all her hits she's going to be playing. She's not promoting a new album. It's going to be all the best of. So I wanted to, to ask everybody, like, if you had to see one artist or or band in concert that was going to do a best of tour, who would it be? So uh, why don't we start with Nazreen? Oh, right away, I would say The weekend. I would love, love to do the best of tour. 
Uh, Nazreen, how do you define best of, though? Because that's where I'm going to quibble with Alex's question in a second. But how would you define best of? Radio hits only? No. No, I wouldn't say that. I would say, um, I don't know. I feel like I, I know. All, that's the thing. I know all the weekend songs. And I'm a fan of, like, 99.9% of his work. So I'd say the best of is just getting all the the right songs to hear live i mean some of like some of the songs that he would sing live it's so angelic i don't know if that's the right word for it but it's it's absolutely you know i don't know if you if you know what i mean but like it's so nice just the, the, to hear the, it live that the, the vocal is so piercing the vocal that, that yeah exactly through the system like that is just impeccable so just hearing his vocals properly would be so amazing and that's what i define as best of and i i want i want it to last a really long time and i know <laughs> i know for a fact like there's so many concerts out there that just last for like an hour and i don't think that's enough for the weekend no not me. if you're not if you're paying 200 dollars for your ticket exactly and and when you're paying that much you want it to last a long time and that's the annoying part about a lot of these concerts it's about there's there's so many features there's so many openings that when you finally get to that main artist, it goes by so quickly. Uh, Ramya, like I said, I'm going to quibble with Alex's best of in a second, as I like to do to harass poor Alex Smythe. But if you think about an artist off the top of your brain who you'd want to go see a best of show for, who would it be? I was thinking Lady Gaga. I do agree with you, though, Nisreen. I think uh, The weekend I have not seen him live, but I know so many of his radio hit songs and a couple of his albums, too. So I'm mm -hmm. um, curious about how he is live. But Lady Gaga, for just the radio hits, like, Unfortunately, I don't know Lady Gaga beyond radio or beyond, you know, soundtracks for movies and just anything that's gotten popular, anything that I've seen her actually do live in other concerts, just like the halftime show or something uh, that I've watched on TV. But she's an incredible artist. I know that she's incredible stage performer. Her mm -hmm. vocals are on point. She's classically trained. She's got so much going for her. So if someone were to do a best of concert and kill it, it would probably be Lady Gaga. I would have obviously said Beyonce, but I've already seen her in concert <laughs> twice. So gonna change the answer a little. So so Alex, uh Rummy and I yep. both maybe landed around that idea of saying if it's a best of show, it's gotta be the radio hits. It has to be the pop stuff. What do you make of that definition of best of? Yeah, I, I would say it's the the most synonymous songs of their catalog. Now it doesn't have to be the ones that your favorites, obviously. I mean it's gonna be whatever the popular demands it, but I I think when you do a show like a best of show to include some maybe whether lesser played, lesser known ones that work well or blend well between these different songs. You can't just go hit, 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 hit. No, I think, I, think, I think you have to go hit, 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 hit. Yeah, it's you, the best you, of show. You, yep. I don't want to yes, hear deep you, cuts. I'm a, I'm a casual. No, <laughs> no, no, no. So, so Dave, for instance, like you have to have one that It's going to flow from one hit to another, right? You know, because... Depending on the artist, depending on who it is, there there needs to be that transition. There needs to be the proper flow from the song. So I I think it's not saying okay, you got to go for a B side to to fill the gap. But let's say for instance, you know, um, uh, off the top of my head, Queen. You don't go, you know, uh, we will rock you, then Bohemian Rhapsody, then uh, Fat Bottom Girls, then. Uh, we are the champion. Like it, I mean, it, this sounds like there a has to show. be a bit of a more nuance to it. <laughs> uh, okay, guys, we've only got about three minutes here on the clock, so I need you to be fast on this one so we can get to one more. Um, instead of a best of show, what do you guys make of a lot of artists who are now doing, we're just touring this classic album. Death Cab for Cutie later this year is going to be doing shows that are just transatlanticism. I saw Everclear doing just so much for the Afterglow a couple years ago. Weezer did just the Blue album back in 2013. Alex, what do you make of artists saying, we are just touring one classic album. That's what we're giving you. I, I'm all in favor for it because you know exactly what you're going to get. If you're a fan of that album and that band specifically, then you're in for a great time. But you know, if maybe you're you you like other albums more. It's like okay, maybe I'm this this series or this tour isn't for me. So what Everclear and Weezer did is after they played the album, they did play a couple more hits on the back end just to you know give you a little yes. bit more of a taste to get up to that mm -hmm. ninety minute two hour mark on the show. Nazreen, what do you make of a band saying, "Hey, it's not necessarily best of, but we're going to play singularly your favorite album for a show"? 
I am so good with it. I I know what to expect and I know what's going to be played and my expectations are high there. So when I watched, uh, when I listened, when I watched Giveon in his concert and it was just amazing because I knew what was going on. I knew which songs he's going to play. So I like it. Ramya, I don't pretend to know your favorite Beyonce record, but if she said, we're just going to be doing Lemonade, are you in? Oh, I'm so in. Yeah, and even with the smaller artists, right? Like Jessie Reyes, I saw her in concert. She only had one album at the time, oh. and it was a tiny haul. And I was like, this is perfect, because I, I only know this album. You only got this album. We're on each other's pages. One of the greatest times of my life was going to see a Dave Matthews concert when he had just released Busted Stuff. So at that point, he only had five records to draw from. And I think those five records in consecutively are five of the best records ever. So to see him, I thought, at the peak of his powers was so cool. I loved, like, every song that got played. But I loved those best of shows as well. Okay, Alex, like, we're going to go faster, guys. We've only got a minute. <laughs> Alex, can you name me an artist who you saw that essentially hit you with what was a best show, whether by best of show, whether by name or not by name, but it was a hit parade? Uh, Iron Maiden and Alice Cooper both deliver. Alice, there we go. Nazreen, what about you? Can you think of a show you went to where essentially it was a nonstop hit parade? I think Demi Lovato. That's for oh, sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I agree She's with amazing. you. Demi, totally. Uh, for me, J. Cole, though. He only played the hits and everything was like, there was so much pacing, you know, fast, slow, rap, storytelling, and I loved it. Yeah, those are all great selections. I like that. I'm going to go back to uh, Weezer. I saw Weezer uh, when they were allegedly doing that Blue Album tour in 2013 at a music festival. They didn't do the Blue Album thing. They played most of the Blue Album thing, but for about two hours, they played every single song that you knew. Hey, guys, really appreciate your insight on this one. Alex, fantastic topic. Alex, have a wonderful day. You too. Nazreen, you have a nice day as well. Thank you so much. Ramya, I always look forward to bumping into you around the office. So maybe when I'm back from the dentist, I'll see you later today. Catch you later. That is Alex Smythe, the co-host of this show, Nazreen Abdel-Majid, an AMI-audio producer, and Ramya Amuthan, who is the co-host of Kelly and Ramya, coming your way at 2 p.m. Eastern time on AMI-audio and AMI-tv. You can download their podcast by searching for Kelly and Ramya, just like you can download our podcast by searching for Now with Dave Brown. That's all the time we have on the show today. We'll be back again tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. Eastern time. Until then, I'm Dave Brown reminding you to play safe, play fair, but don't forget to have some fun. Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv. Join us weekly for The Pulse with host Joita Gupta, who brings us closer to issues impacting the disability community across Canada. Watch The Pulse on YouTube or listen wherever you download your AMI podcasts.